Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. We're going to be looking at Peter, the epistles of Peter. And they're kind of interesting. Uh, there's actually a, a great debate amongst theologians as to whether Peter even wrote the first epistle of uh, Peter. We know there was a first epistle of Peter because there was a second epistle of Peter where he refers to the epistle as his second epistle, <laughs> his second letter uh, to the churches. It, we, no, we don't have any of the very first copies of uh, the epistles, so it's not like we can submit them to a handwriting expert. We know that they are considerably different in the way in which they're written, some of the language used in them, some of the uh, terms used in them. And so it suggests that there could be a uh, an author who uh, received the uh, dictation of Peter and wrote down his first epistle. And uh, that there is a certain likelihood of that. There's also the possibility that because these were recopied over and the message was timeless, during uh, later persecutions, someone rewrote the epistle, trying to put it, you know, on better, better paper, better copy, and uh, through their personal zealousness, added a little bit to it and changed the way in which some of the words were written. And that's that's a reasonable argument as well. But when I look at the actual content of the first epistle and the second epistle, I find them absolutely in accord with the teachings of Jesus Christ. And this is this is one of the things when you go and you look at Paul, who wrote much different than Peter. And uh, there's actually a debate as to whether all the epistles attributed to Paul were written by Paul, uh, because there are differences there as well. But uh, when you actually begin to understand the context of the uh, and the language that is used in these epistles, whether written by Paul or James or John or Peter, they do appear to be very authentic and in conformity with the gospel of Christ. The doctrines of the church are the doctrines of Christ. They're not the doctrines of Peter. They're not the doctrines of Paul. They're not the doctrines of James. But it is reasonable to believe that their doctrines coincided, were in conformity with the doctrines of Christ. And Paul preached Christ first. Peter tells in his second epistle that Paul was going to, his brother Paul, was going to talk to you about things that were hard to understand. And this is, of course, why Paul is so misunderstood. That and the other reason Paul is misunderstood, which may actually carry more weight with uh, the criticism of Paul's writings, is that the people criticizing Paul don't understand Christ. They don't understand the gospel of Christ. And that is actually far more reasonable as an influence in in misunderstanding Paul, misunderstanding Peter, misunderstanding James, 
And that's because Christ is not understood. And I see that very clearly when I read the doctrines of the modern churches that are out there. I mean, recently we've seen a new pope who has taken over the Roman Catholic Church, and his views are so undecidedly different than past popes that there must be something afoot. How could he be so vastly different than at least recent past popes? When I say recent, the last 200 years. Uh, if you go back a ways, the popes, uh, they jumped all over the place. Uh, their views on the Crusades, their views on Inquisitions. I mean, you actually had popes writing books on how to torture people. This is uh, clearly not the way of Christ. I doubt Christ would write a book on how to torture people. But those things have taken place over the centuries where vast numbers of people, people in power, get the craziest ideas, the the most absurd, far-ranging ideas, and you think, well, how could they ever think this way? How could they accept these ideas? Well, if you look in the news today, you can look at uh, people that are, you know, conservatives and and uh, liberals and progressives, and and their views are so widely divergent over... Um, you know, the course of, you know, the modern news platform where you see people talking about what's going on and what are the problems of the world, etc. I mean, there's a huge movement now talking about capitalism as if capitalism is evil and wicked and has caused all the problems of today. Yet we know just last century that the rise of socialism and 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 communism, which came about because of the rise of democracy, which was not what early America was all about. Early America was not creating the democratic government. It was creating a republic, which is vastly different than a democratic government. There are things that we call democratic uh, views uh, or democratic approaches in a republic. In other words, the people have some say But in a republic, the people have no authority over their neighbor. They cannot rule over their neighbor. It's not a majority rules. In a republic, the people are free from things public. In a pure republic, they are free from things public. They are not subject to the dictations of a single ruler or a multitude of rulers. That they are free souls in nature. That's what a pure republic is. But republics... There's a vast variety of republics out there. I mean, the Soviet Union called itself a republic. China calls itself a republic. The United States calls itself a republic. And in truth, none of those governments are actually republics. All of those governments are forms of governments in republics. In other words, those governments gain their power by the consent of the people. And that consent is is uh is questionable uh to say the least you know a lot of people say well where's the social contract they don't believe in social compacts and of course now there's a variety of views on social compacts we have articles on social compacts uh where you have hobbes's opinion and other people's opinion of what a social compact consists of and how it comes about so when we use these terms people will want to throw them out 
as if they they have no relevance because they have already decided they disagree with that term. Well, the reality is that you need to define those terms. You need to understand what they are talking about. And if you're going to read Peter, if you're going to read Paul, you're going to have to look at the terms that they actually are using and what those terms meant to them and to other people at that time. Because that's how you're going to understand them. You're not going to understand them simply by reading a translation of a translation of a, of a copy of a copy and look at it from your uh, modern mall viewpoint and figure out what Peter was talking about, what Paul was talking about. You have to kind of immerse yourself in that time and in that that person of Peter. What kind of a person was Peter? Paul was a scholar. He comes from a different background. Peter was not necessarily a scholar. He wasn't unlearned. He could read and write. He had read many things. He was a capitalist. He was a man in business. He had other men working for him. He appears to have more than one boat. Uh, that made him fairly wealthy in those days. A Someone who was simply a fisherman would stand out in the water or and throw his net out in the water hoping to catch fish. But he actually owned a boat. He owned a large home. And he had a family. He was... He, but he was a working man. He was a hands-on man. He was a jump-in-the-water-and-do-it-yourself kind of man. And so, that's a different background than than Paul, who uh, was raised in a wealthy, wealthy family. His stepfather was a Roman. He, he was well-known throughout the empire. Uh, he had a much different background. What was the background of Christ? What kind of life did he live? If you go and watch the movies and, and you go to many of the Bible studies, you have this idea that Christ was a father was a poor carpenter and lived in a little village and they walked around with dusty sandaled feet and uh, they eked out a living as poor people. But that's not actually what the text in history tells us. That Christ, actually the text tells us that Jesus was rich. It actually says that where he says, though he was rich, he made himself poor. We know that his uncle was Joseph of Arimathea, who by historical records was one of the wealthiest men in the Roman Empire. He knew other wealthy men like uh, Simon the jar maker or Simon the leper, which are probably the same person who show up in historical documents as extremely wealthy people. He was a purveyor of oils. That's why they call him Simon the Jar Maker. The reason we see that as Simon the Leper is because when you translate from Aramaic to Greek, uh, the same words that would be a jar maker looks like the words for a leper. But there's no reason to believe that Simon was a leper. Uh, but, these are, you know, you have to look at these things and these pieces of the puzzle and you put together a view of the people involved uh, and you come to a different conclusion than what you were taught in catechism as a five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old, eight-year-old person or even maybe taught in colleges. So the question is, is 
when do all the pieces of the puzzle fit together? And what kind of picture starts to form? Now, ultimately, in all the things that I try to share with you and bear witness to, I believe that the way you really know is because the Spirit of God is written upon your heart and upon your mind. It's the revelation of the Holy Spirit. That's how you're really going to know. But when we look at the details of these individuals and what they've written and what has come down through history and what has been uh, discovered in history, you start to disconnect from what you previously have accepted as true. Now, some people are are anxious to overthrow everything that they were taught is true and throw everything out and start all over again. Well, that's not necessarily a good idea either. And uh, they can come up with all kinds of theories about this. And cons- they love conspiracy theories. And they're more likely to believe a good conspiracy theory even when it bucks the facts. And they're more likely to accept things as facts because they support their conspiracy. Well, that's not a good approach either. So we have to have an objective look when we look at these uh, epistles. And and we cannot cover every little detail. We cannot, you know, look at every jot and tittle, although these are written in Greek, so therefore you're not, you're not dealing with jots and tittles. But the language is an imperfect way of communicating. <laughs> it just is, because words have multiple meanings. And over a period of time, and they can change in context. And so you want to read Peter in the context of Jesus Christ. And again, most people do not have a clear understanding of what Jesus Christ was really all about. If you go back to the beginning of the Bible, and you see that we have Adam and Eve, and their two sons, Abel and Cain, and eventually another son, and... uh And Cain starts a city-state. Seth didn't start a city-state. There's no reference to him starting a city-state. And there's no reference to Abel starting a city-state. But there is a reference to Cain starting a city-state. And even the word in Hebrew for city, uh, it has to do with something that is terrifying, that is is frightening. And uh, so the city-state is actually a structure where you go into that social compact. You go under the contract of that city-state and become subject to the laws of that city-state. Without that city-state, you're subject to the laws of nature, the, the natural law, the law that was put into place when God created the heavens and the earth. It pre-existed mankind. And man must... Uh, conform to that law or suffer the consequences of his unconformity. But you see, from Cain to Nimrod, from Pharaoh to Caesar, a pattern of the bondage of mankind to other men, where they go under the authority of other men. Yet we see God delivering people from that bondage. Uh, There was the flood that destroyed the world and those that were in it. And when we read Peter, we're going to see reference to that, destroying that world, that system that was running things at the time of the flood. 
And uh, we see Pharaoh, of course, people were subject to the Pharaoh. They were in bondage to the Pharaoh. And God removed them from that bondage through Moses and set them free under a different form of government than that that the Pharaoh had offered. Caesar comes along. Caesar was the beginning of a uh, imperial power in what had been a republic for 500 years. They had thrown out the Tarquinian kings and become a republic. And the Caesars, Augustus Caesar really being the first actual Caesar who seized power and took control where the people were becoming subject to Caesar, subject to a Senate who was making laws. The Senate originally did not make laws. It was simply a council of men. All these things were changing, and along comes Christ. So, understanding that environment, understanding what Herod was doing, why he was building this temple, how he was building this temple, It'll give us more and more insight into exactly what the conflict between Christ and the world really was. This world of Caesar. This world of the Greeks. What was that conflict? Was it the same conflict as Cain and Nimrod and Pharaoh? Was Christ delivering the people from the bondage that they were going under with Herod and Caesar? Yes, he was. And that bondage, though, has a basic spiritual component that has appeared over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And we see it again in the New Testament. But if you don't understand the Old Testament, you don't understand what was really going on, what the altars of clay and stone really were, then you are likely to miss miss what Christ was doing. In 1 Peter and 2 Peter, it tells us of hope. And it tells us to be holy and to love one another. And how does that love manifest itself? What did the early Christian society look like? Peter is telling us we need to be doers of the word unto righteousness without the lust of the gifts offered by the fathers of the earth. Men like Cain, Nimrod, Pharaoh, Caesar. And they, Christians were not looking for the free bread of Caesar. They were eating at another table. They were eating in another, you know, they were, they were providing benefits in that love for one another. And how they were doing that is what most modern Christians are not being told. And we're going to look at the epistles of Peter and see if we can't find out what it is that we are missing so that we can conform more to the ways of Christ. So in First Peter, uh, the uh, first chapter, first verse, Peter talks about himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, an apostle is like an ambassador. That's, that's what the word meant in those days. That's what it means today in the Greek. That he was an ambassador of Jesus Christ. Just to say the word Jesus Christ is to say Jesus the King. Because Christ meant anointed and the kings of Israel were anointed. And Jesus was a king. We see that in Acts. There is another king on Jesus. 
And Peter was doing contrary to the decrees of Caesar. He wasn't disobeying Caesar because he didn't have an obligation to obey Caesar because he was an ambassador to another king. He he served another kingdom. He and Jesus and John the Baptist were preaching the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God. Now he goes on to say to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And what what does he mean, strangers? Are these people strangers to him? Well, actually, that word that we see translated strangers is normally translated pilgrim, and generally meaning a foreigner residing in another country. Uh, they would be someone who is not uh, sworn allegiance to the leaders of that country, but they are residents in that country. They obey laws within that country, but they are not subject to everything that comes down the pike in that country because they're only residents. They're not, they have no sworn allegiance to that. They, they could be drafted in, in many cases, depending on the laws of that country, but they are not the same as, uh, as the citizens themselves. They don't have the same rights, and therefore they will not have the same obligations. And that will vary from country to country. But as residents, they can leave. <laughs> they can go somewhere else. And this is one of the important reasons why the early church, and we see it right away in the in the Acts of the Apostles, was this vast network. Because in when the persecutions came, they usually came in certain areas where it got real strong and Christians had to flee that area and go to another area. And because they were this vast network, they had places to go. We see this uh, throughout history that when evil comes and takes over a particular area, people have to migrate, immigrate, get out of one location and get into another location. And if they have friends and a network that reaches over there, that gives them a commonality with these other people, they can do that. And the early church was doing that on a regular basis because of persecution. Also because uh, there was a decline in fall of the Roman Empire. There were some areas where they would have, uh, you know, uh, depressions, uh, serious depressions, famines, and you would just simply have to leave. I mean, were there Christians living in Pompeii? Uh, you know, 70 years after the birth of Christ, the Pompeii explodes and wipes out the whole population there almost. Some people had to flee. Did Christians get a heads up? You know, got to get out of Dodge? Did they have to go somewhere else? Did they have someplace else to go when they were thrown out of Rome? Did they have someplace else to go? Absolutely. And we'll talk more about that when we come back to the keys of the kingdom. But we need to Always be going back and looking at the bigger picture in order to understand the minute details of Peter. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, in the second verse, we see Peter talking, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God, 
the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. So this is this is who he is addressing in general. He's writing to these the, the Christians in these different areas. Uh, they're only residents in these different places because that somehow or other they are not necessarily citizens. They are often considered separate because they say there is another king. So they're literally saying that that their king is Jesus Christ. But we, yeah, we're living in this country and it may have a mayor or may have a, a king or a ruler in this country. But our king is somewhere else. Now, that was very common in the Roman Empire. In the Pax Romana, you had to usually pick somebody as your king or ruler or benefactor. That Your citizenship had to be with some ruler or another. Nimrod had this same system. But if it was a recognized king, that's who your ruler was. And so there was a different set of rules that you would have to go by. You would not necessarily, you would not necessarily have to sign up for the social welfare program in that city state. If you were signed up for the social welfare program in that city state, you would have to pay into it. Herod had such a system. And you could sign up and become a registered member of his social welfare program. And your sacrifice into that program, your payment into that program was required by ordinances, by statutory requirements. And if you failed to pay in, if you tried to cheat the system, you could be held accountable for that cheating. Everybody was who lived in Judea was not registered. Some people were were not registered and would not have to pay into that system. If you were registered with Herod's temple, you would be expected to pay in a tribute coin to show that you were a member of that system. And somebody might come up and say, well, are you a member of the system? Do you pay the tribute? And, of course, we just did a whole program and we have an article on uh, on tribute and paying tribute. That was a particular instance where Peter was asked, does your master pay the tribute at the temple? Not talking about Caesar's tribute. This is the temple tribute that is paid in way back in Jewish law. And it was only like a half shekel coin. And it, But everybody had to pay it in once a year. And that proved that you were a part of the system. The rest of the payments in that system were free will offerings. And you got to choose what Levite you would pay it into. And you became a part of this network of of tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. And that's where you went if you had trouble, if you had need of social welfare, if you ended up with widows and orphans. That would all be taken care of by those free will offerings that were given in this peculiar government set up by Moses. Everybody... And Judea was not a card-carrying member of that system. Other people had other systems. The Essenes, for the most part, were not a part of that system. They still depended upon charity. Herod had set this system up where it was a mandatory payment. That payment, that sacrifice, that was called Corbin. And it went into a treasury that sometimes they referred to as Corbin. The early church had a 
a poor box where they put funds that were to help take care of the needy of society, and that was called Corbanos uh, for centuries at the beginning and uh, uh, during the history of the early church. That because that Corbin was always part of a social welfare system, the different the two different kinds were the the ones that were based on free will offerings and the perfect law of liberty. That's what Moses had created, and that's what Christ and John the Baptist were talking about. But Herod was talking about compelled offerings that that you had to pay in based on statutory requirements. So if you are part of Herod's system of Corbin that was set up by the Pharisees, you were under an authority by contract and you had to pay in. If you were a part of Christ's system of Corbin through the apostles, through the ministers that Christ had set up, through the kingdom that Christ had appointed, you were still, you had to pay in, but it was a free will offering. And so Christ goes in great detail in one of his parables where he talks about the good servant who says, okay, how much do you owe? I owe this much. How much can you pay? Okay, I give you a sheet says paid in full. And he allows people to pay less than what they are required to pay if they say, that's all I can pay. And, and he allows them to pay less. And he makes himself a friend to those people. And uh, now that can be done poorly where the person is actually lying. <laughs> he can't pay more. He just wants to pay less. But of course, whatever he pays less, that means there will be less for him if he has a need. So what happens is that that system is self-governing. If people are selfish, there won't be enough to go around and everybody will starve. If people are not selfish, there will be an abundance of loaves and fishes and everybody will have a surplus. So this is the 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 deciding factor when you move over to the law of nature and nature's God, that if you're selfish, your government will fail you. But if you're if you gather together with unselfish, loving people who love their neighbor as themselves, your government will prosper. But the difference is that government is one of free will choice. The power of choice remains with the people. This was the distinction in Christianity. This is what made them peculiar. Because at that particular time in history, almost every country was moving over to this socialist model where you signed up, you had to pay in, it went into a central treasury, and then your ministers, you might have some democratic election of their, those ministers, would shell it back to you according to what they thought was right. They would decide what was good and evil. But you, your decision to pay in was now in their hands. They could force you to pay in. It, the choice was no longer yours. You were no longer at liberty. The Christians were at liberty. This this activity of taking care of the needy of society, that was called religion. That's what religion was. It was how you took care of the needy of your society. And that's why James says pure religion is taking care of the needy of your society unspotted by the constitutional orders and systems of governments of the world. So that's what made them strangers 
in these communities because they did not sign up for the free bread of Rome. They didn't have to pay into the free bread of Rome, but they didn't sign up for it. They were not a party to it. And we see some people today in the world, you know, like I say, 20% of the people in uh, Santo Domingo, they don't get a Sessula number. They they take care of one another and it brings their rural communities together. They're not subject to the same taxes, but they also don't have access to the same benefits. We have people today in America, that same thing is true. They're not a part of the social welfare system. They don't have to necessarily pay into it, but they also don't benefit from it. There's actually, we did a program talking about certain forms you could fill out where you can opt out of those social welfare programs. but. That's not necessarily available to everybody. <laughs> but anyway, those those things do exist. But the interesting thing in these first two verses, which are just simply an address to the people, and this whole epistle at, at first is an encouragement because there was some persecution going on. The people were uh, being persecuted because they were Christians because the people in the systems of social welfare in these communities saw Christians not paying in, and they were kind of jealous of that and envious of that. And sometimes, they, you know, they, they called them idiots because they thought, well, of course you want to be a part of this system. How else can you be taken care of? But, of course, the Christians knew there is another way, and it's by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the character, by the Spirit, by the grace of Jesus Christ in each of our hearts, working together, loving one another. And we take care of one another through charity. That was a very common idea 200 years ago in America. It's not so common today. The churches used to take care of all the social welfare in the communities. They don't do it today. As a matter of fact, your modern Christian can't even imagine, oh, no, well, the church can't take care of those kinds of expenses. Somebody get cancer and right away they will bankrupt the church. How how come you don't bankrupt the government when somebody gets cancer? Well, actually, the government already is bankrupt. That's why they went to these systems. <laughs> but the reality was the, the, the people would not be bankrupt for numerous reasons if they were actually following the ways of Christ. It is actually the way to success. But we have this, we our thinking has been so distorted that we can't even think straight anymore. It's, and it goes back to what we said at the beginning of the show, where capitalism is bad, but socialism is good. When the reverse is the case, most of the problems today in the economy is because the money is a socialist money system. Uh, Federal Reserve notes, that's a socialist type money system. That is not true weights and measures. Social Security, that's socialism. And that also makes you subject to the income tax. That's what's turned your exchange of $10 labor for $10 payment. That's what turned it into income is because you waived a right to a portion of your income in order to become a part of the Social Security system. So that turned wages and salaries into income because they weren't before. That's socialism. Public education, which got going around uh, 1910, that's when we first started 50% 50% of Americans were being taught in public school, though even though many of those public schools were heavily privately funded. In the following 20 to 30 years, 
they became almost, and certainly by the 1960s, were almost entirely funded by the government. Much of those funds came from federal funds, and so therefore control of those institutions became totally socialist, and that's why they're graduating more and more socialists who think capitalism is bad. Uh, capitalism, all capitalism is, there is no moral criteria to capitalism other than what you produce is yours. That's what capitalism says. If you produce it, if you obtain it, you know, lawfully obtain it through labor and sweat, through the expenditure of your life, obtain or accumulate wealth, that wealth is yours. It doesn't mean that you can't redistribute it yourself. It means you have the right and responsibility of redistributing. So there is redistribution of wealth in capitalism. But the choice to do that is in the hands of every individual who produced that wealth. And that's, of course, what Christianity is all about. You have the right to choose how much you will share with your neighbor and how you will do it and through whom you will do it. You, Christianity thrives in a cap- capitalist society. It survives in a socialist society. But... Socialist societies don't survive forever. They eventually degrade the people. And we talk about this. And we'll talk about this as we go through the uh, text. So in verse 3 we see, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto lively hope By the resurrection of Jesus Christ, again, the anointed, the king, from the dead. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you. Now, some of these terms, like I said, Christ, whenever you see that, they're talking about the king, the anointed, the messiah, the messiah. But... What is all this reference to God and Father? Why say, blessed to be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Why not just say the God of our... But they add this word Father. Well, you can go through all kinds of scenarios. But at that time, if you saw that word patri, which is what we see in the Greek text, is the Latin word patri, Father... You understood that all the senators of Rome were addressed as Patri Cicero, Patri Seneca. That was the, the way in which you addressed all senators. It is also the way in which you addressed the emperor himself. He was known as the Patronus, our father who art in Rome. Christ says, call no man father uh, upon the earth. And he talks about the fathers of the earth. That's That's the senator's... And rulers, governments were established because the natural father gave up some of his responsibility and therefore some of his rights to take care of his family to a central figure or group of figures. And there they were empowered with choices that that father once had within his own family. Christianity, Judaism was about restoring those fathers their right to choose, their responsibility to take care of their family, and to love their neighbor's family as much as they love their own. Because when you create a society where people have to take care of one another through free will offerings, you create spiritual bonds that will hold up 
during time of crisis. And times of crisis were on the way and already showing up for the early Christians as Rome began its process of decline, which uh, went on for hundreds of years, but at times got pretty intense for the early Christians. But he talks about this incorruptible inheritance reserved in heaven. Well, this is another whole topic, this idea of heaven. Uh, the Pope, the, the recent Pope just came out and said there is no hell, evidently. So, if there is no hell, is there no heaven? <laughs> I don't know. But the, we, we've talked about the actual physics of heaven and, and, uh, and hell, that there are these multiple dimensions. And whether you want to believe it in those terms or believe it in the old terms of heaven and hell, uh, that's up to you. Uh, many of the images we have of hell come from books like Dante's Inferno, uh, and they are projected images. We don't really know what they look like. We have people who say they come back and sell lots of books about what they saw when they were there, but you don't really know. But the idea that we live in a cause and effect universe, so if you make choices, righteous choices, because Remember, the Corbin of the Pharisees is making the word of God, which brought the universe into existence, into none effect. Well, how is it doing it? And what I'm, I'm suggesting to you to contemplate, because we can't prove it from the text, is that what you do and why you do it sets in motion a spiritual power that is recorded in these multiple dimensions that will guide and protect or or fool and uh, be your downfall. It's kind of like Macbeth. They, Shakespeare writes the play of Macbeth where the soothsayers come and these witches come and tell him all the great things that are going to happen to him if he goes this particular route. And so he goes that particular route and all those great things happen to him. But unfortunately, they they encrypted what it meant. No man could kill you. But then, you know, no man born of woman will kill you. And then, of course, he meets his the final guy who's about to kill him and finds out he was not born of woman, but his mother died and they cut him from her womb to save his life. And uh, so he was born of a corpse. He wasn't born naturally. It was like a cesarean. And so, therefore, he was not born of woman. <laughs> So he was able to kill Macbeth. All their promises came true, but because of Macbeth's evil intent, it all caused his destruction. Well, magnify that times the empire of Rome. Uh, there, there was a phrase, and this actually just recently came up. Actually, uh, if someone I know in a political debate brought it up, uh, the, the, the old phrase, the end justifies the means. In other words, that justifies that, oh yeah, you can kill all these people if good comes of it eventually. Well, actually, the Romans had twisted that around. Originally, it was the means will justify the end, which is a part of this natural process that if you do things in a righteous way, based on righteousness, based on what is just, right, and fair, it will create a result down the road uh, automatically because that righteous uh, deed, that righteous purpose, that righteous intent is actually recorded 
in the whole environment of man, not just the physical environment we see, but even in the spiritual environment we see. So that's, if you do things in a righteous way, he's saying that that's not lost. The means does justify the ends. It actually brings the end about. And that's what he's actually talking about. So that's actually kind of a metaphysical statement that he's talking about. That if you, if you take care of the needy through covetous practices, that's going to bring about a different end. A different uh, set of events is going to come about. Because you're making the word of God to none effect. You're, it's not going to be a creative, benevolent force that comes about or produces the end result. It will actually produce destruction. And you will we'll take a look at a number of other places where historians have made reference to this without actually knowing that they're making reference to it. I believe that Peter actually knew what he was talking about. This incorruptible inheritance. If you do things for the right reason, it is recorded in the process of and in the wholeness of creation. And it will have an effect down the road that you may not see now will be manifest in in maybe future generations to come. And so you have to have this pure heart in order to put that uh, end result into motion to come about in a future time. And then right away he talks in the very next verse, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last times. And I have a little bit of a side note over there talking about this reference to last times. The word last times may not be a reference to end times. Uh, the Greek phrase is uh, eskatos uh, keros. Uh, may only reference extreme times or seasons in relationships to ongoing persecution. So, what he's saying is that because you do things righteously, because you you are living in a righteous fashion, according to the honor and glory of, that, of Jesus Christ and the way Jesus Christ lived, that this will have an effect in hard times. It will, you know, you'll suddenly know Pompey is about to blow. And you'll leave town. And your family, your whole family will be saved. You'll suddenly know that, oh, I can't go that way with these guys. And then they all perish. And you didn't know why. But somehow or other you knew not to go. And those kinds of miraculous events happen all the time if you are living in a righteous way. If you are not living in a righteous way, you will be oblivious. You will get up, you know, and go buy a ticket on the Titanic, thinking it's an unsinkable ship. And you won't have any inclination of the fact that it is on its way to destruction. Because you're blind to it. You can't see. And Peter will talk about that blindness that comes with this unrighteous pursuit of happiness. See, you, in the kingdom of God, you have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But you don't really say happiness. You say righteousness. The pursuit of righteousness. Because righteousness is what makes you happy. We'll be right back. 
So welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. So we're we're looking at First Peter, that first chapter, and we've only really gotten down to verse six here, and we see that Jesus uh, that uh, Peter is addressing the followers of Jesus, the Christ, the King, and these are Christians who have received the baptism of Christ and likely been cast out of the welfare systems of the world in which they lived. And they were now learning to take care of one another through faith, hope, and charity, rather than the covetous practices of the Corbin of the Pharisees or the Corbin of Rome. Rome had such a system. And it was spread. I mean, one of the reasons Herod set it up the way he did was because he was a progeny of a number of the Roman people who were coming up in the ranks in and in power in Rome. And they were had moved to the socialist state where they had this huge free bread giveaway. Sometimes half of the people of Rome were getting free bread handed out on a weekly basis, sometimes on a daily basis, to the needy of their society. And this was to appease the masses. And, of course, it was it, it had started uh, hundreds of years before, and Polybius writes about it, and was saying that it was degenerating society even there 150 years before Christ was even born. But it was really under underway under Augustus Caesar. And uh, it was debilitating the society at a rapid rate and turning them into what Polybius referred to as savages, uh, fit for the first dictator to come along. And of course, we've seen this in the last century where people move to democratic societies and then begin to vote themselves benefits, and then they move to a socialist society, then they move to a communist society, then they take away the guns and the power of the people. And they've already taken a great deal of the power away because the communities are not united to take care of one another anymore. They don't have to. Everything comes down from this central authority. Uh, you know, all the benefits... You, you go to the federal offices, uh, to the, to the pharaoh's offices, to, uh, the imperial offices to get your benefits and not to your local community. So, uh, the people have already lost the thing that really made them great and powerful as a, as a people because they have been divided and now they are more fit to be conquered. But then they usually take away, you know, their guns and their weapons of war or whatever. And then all the power is centralized and then they come along and they massacre, you know, uh, 20 million, 50 million, 60 million people. And uh, and then the system collapses usually or goes through a number of other changes. But the people are literally altered. But God has this reserve place that the, the guns and... Uh, and machinery of dictators cannot go. And this is what we were talking about in verse 6, this reserved in heaven. So you'll find this revival coming about in the next generation, in the spirit of the next generation, growing up, this this revival of righteousness. And we saw it somewhat in the Soviet Union. It's usually a minority of people. But you see it rising up. You see it in uh, the church in China. It, it's rising up. It's hard to identify. It's hard to... And of course it needs to be. Because otherwise they'd come and destroy it right away. And persecute it. But that's that's coming through the next generation. Through this spiritual reserve of people who suffered. 
under the tyranny of the previous generation. But if you're not careful, then you yourself will become tyrants in that generation. By the same token, there is this lack of uh, this vacuum, the spiritual vacuum that is created by a self-indulgent, lustful, wantonous uh, society uh, full of desires and covetous practices. They end up producing a generation that is uh, selfish and totally uh, what's in it for me. And uh, they go around thinking the world owes them a living. And so what I'm saying here is that what you see manifesting itself in society is actually a result of that spiritual choices that you are making from generation to generation. And you needed to bring along the abject slavery of Egypt, oppressing the people for a hundred years or more in order to bring about the awakening that allowed people to even hear what Moses had to say. Because today, people do not want to hear the real gospel. They they go and pay uh, preachers to be motivational speakers, to make them feel good on Sunday, uh, to give them all kinds of encouragement, to uh, to make them feel like they're saved. And they'll use the gospel of Christ or parts of it in order to facilitate that. But they are actually the people who are following Christ according to these motivational speaker preachers are actually often workers of iniquity. But where is the real sheep of Christ, the real flock of Christ? And they're mixed in all over the place. And so hopefully by the time we get to the end here, you're going to start being able to see what it is to be the flock of Christ, to be the followers of Christ. So, we see right away in verse 7 that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes. I'm just going to use the English rather than the old English. Perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Now, we think of second coming, that he's referring to the second coming and the appearing of Jesus Christ and, and all this stuff. And there, and I'm not going to get into that, but the reality is it's appearing of Jesus Christ in us. It is that, that anointing of Christ in us. It is at least that. Now, it may manifest itself in a physical way also, but if it doesn't manifest itself in a spiritual way, because there's going to, Jesus warns us about many people thinking that, oh, we did this in your name and we, we're Christians and we're followers of Christ. And, and Jesus says to those many, get ye from me, I know you not, and calls them workers of iniquity. So there is a deceptive receiving of Christ, accepting of Christ, but it's not the real Christ. And, and Christ warns about that in several places. So in verse 8 we see, Whom having not seen ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Jesus talked about the same idea. Blessed are those who see without miracles, see without the evidence, and believe without the evidence, because they believe it in their heart. And ultimately, that's where we're going to go with this, is that 
What do you think God really wants you to do? Do you think He wants you to hire governments to take away from your neighbors so that you can have social security? Or does He, do you believe that God wants you to learn to love one another and care for one another? Which, which way would make your society a stronger society? Which way would make your communities stronger? And if you, and you did this in a network the way Christ commanded His disciples to make the people sit down in. Tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands upon thousands upon millions of people in a network of charity, not looking for a central authority to take care of them, but this network of free will offerings and the perfect law of liberty. Those people will move towards liberty because they live by liberty. Those people who live by force will move towards tyrants. Those who are willing to live at the expense of their neighbor through the forced contributions of benefactors who exercise authority, they will move towards uh, the liability of their their covetous practices and they will move towards despotism. And no matter how many likes they uh, click on Facebook, no matter how many votes they get, they will move towards despotism. It is built into creation. That either you live by love or you live by force. If you look to men who exercise authority to provide you with benefits at the expense of your neighbor, you will go under tyranny. You will be blinded. So, this is why he says in this verse 8, Whom having not seen, ye love. They knew who Christ was. They knew what Christ was talking about. Paul had preached Christ first. Peter was preaching Christ first. Who's saying, stop this covetousness. Stop swearing oaths of allegiance. Stop uh, applying to these men who exercise authority. And start loving one another, taking care of one another. And this is why it's so amazing that before the loaves and fishes, Jesus commands his disciples to make the people sit down in these companies, these small congregations of ten. In ranks of 50 and 100 to the tune of 5,000 people. And then the loaves and fishes came. And this was preparing them for Pentecost. Because at Pentecost, they were all cast out of that Corbin system of the Pharisees and Herod and the government of Herod. And they were not going to get benefits anymore. We see that in John with the blind man and his parents who were afraid to profess Christ. Because they knew they weren't going to get any more of these Benefits. Well, those benefits are called the wages of unrighteousness because they're based on force. This is the basics of the kingdom. Most Christians don't want to hear this. They don't hear it from their evangelical ministers. They hear, all you have to do is believe in Jesus Christ. You can keep going to the men, the fathers of the earth, and the benefactors who exercise authority. But if you think that, you're not going to understand Peter. You're not going to understand what goes on. In verse 9, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Now, Peter talks about the salvation of your souls more than once. But he talks about it in a certain context, which we will see. If we go on to verse 10, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace of that should come unto you. Searching. 
what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of the anointing, which was in them, did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Now, Peter's writing people who are suffering. He makes reference to that back up there in verse 6 where he talks about we're in the great rejoice uh, though now for a season if need be ye are in heaviness. That word heaviness is not it's usually translated sorry or sorrowful uh, through manifold temptations. So they have a heaviness through manifold temptations. What are these temptations? What is this heaviness? If if we look up that same word, which is lupeo in the Greek, and, and we'll find it in a number of other places, uh, it appears throughout the gospel. Peter was grieved, that's the same word, because he said unto him a third time, Lovest thou me? When This is when Jesus is saying, Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Three times he asked that. And we will we will visit this later on because it's very interesting. He says, feed my sheep, and that's his answer. But it's not the same word for feed every time he responds. The last time he uses a different word. And almost nobody tells you that. And it actually is, is very significant in understanding the wholeness of the gospel. You can, the word is found in the Corinthians, and it's translated uh, sorrowed and uh, be as nothing. It actually is translated uh, made sorry. In Ephesians, we see it, and grieve, there's the word, not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. So he's saying, don't cause the Holy Spirit to be sorry. <laughs> so so that's the, the nature of that word. But the fact is that they're, they're being persecuted. They are uh, told that they have to sign up for these systems, uh, these public religion systems, these welfare systems. That's what public religion is. We have some links there that will take you to articles. I mean, the whole Christian conflict with Rome, besides the jealousy of the individuals who wanted to mock uh, Christians, and there's always those, but was the fact that the Christians had their own system of social welfare that was separate from the public temples. Yeah, remember that the temple that Herod built was a government building. It had a treasury in it. It was housing the funds, protecting the funds that were used to provide social welfare throughout Judea. And uh, there were uh, overseeing of these same kind of funds as they came into the local synagogues because the synagogue was a part of, it was a government, it was a theocracy. They call it a theocracy. All, all governments are theocracies. It's just that some of them don't have this spiritual God. They only have temporal gods. And these gods are the ruling judges of their society deciding what is good and what is evil. But we we go along with that. We accept that because we don't really understand that there is this other spiritual realm that overshadows everything in the physical realm. The spiritual realm existed first, then the physical realm. Witchcraft is trying to change the spiritual realm by altering the physical realm. The reality is it's the spiritual realm that controls the physical realm. And so therefore, if you obtain welfare, security, through abominations, and I'll use that word here and I'll explain it later on, through evil, 
through unrighteousness that it will come back and bite you like Macbeth. If you obtain or attempt to obtain everything through righteousness, then it will come back and bless you. This is why you are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all else will be provided unto you. If you do not, then something else will take place. So, if we go on to verse 11, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. So, not only was Christ in them, but the sufferings of Christ was in them. They were suffering. They were often persecuted as well. The glory would follow. And we will take a look at that word glory, because that's a very interesting word too. We, we, we see this word glory translated, or at least the original word translated into glory, but what exactly does it actually mean? In verse 12, we see, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them and have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. In other words, he's kind of saying that what they're receiving now is based on the suffering that went before. And the suffering you now are suffering under will bless the generations to come. And this is this is built into creation itself. Parents have children. They have to sacrifice their time, their energy for those children, the many sleepless nights, uh taking care of those children, learning patience with those children, uh, feeding those children, uh teaching those children. Their whole life is a sacrifice as they raise those children up in hopes that those children will take care of them in their own old age. And this is what honoring thy father and thy mother is all about. Because this is a part of nature that you, one man sows, another man reaps. And you, you know, a man builds up wealth to pass on down to his children. Unfortunately, a lot of times he spoils his children and then they squander it all away. <laughs> the fact is, is that there must, no strain, no gain. You must have this effort. So anyway, he's talking about a lot of principles here in these first 12 verses. But when we get into verse 13, it says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, he's talking about the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's Jesus Christ coming in you. Where you begin to see. He talked just before about this fire that came. And it came down upon them. And, and then they came out and they were doing miracles and everything else. That's Christ coming in the form of the Holy Spirit. He's talking in verse 12 about the Holy Ghost. Sent down from heaven. Which things the angels desire to look into. This is this is what, what is happening. Coming down from where? Heaven? What's heaven? Heaven is that place. Where your sorrows are recorded. Where your sacrifice is recorded. It's part of a metaphysical revelation. 
See, um, the what the evil wants to think is that all you have to do is think a thought and you will be saved. And somehow or other, if you just think about this, think about going home, click your heels together, and the prodigal son will just appear back at home. No, the prodigal son had to actually go back home with the intention of serving. And that's what you have to do, too. And and then you become obedient children, which is the very next verse. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. See, that's where a lot of people are. You know, I talk about the social welfare and coveting your neighbor's goods and the Corbin of the Pharisees making the word of God to none effect. And then I say social security is the Corbin of the Pharisees, whether it's in Canada or Australia or wherever. That is, that is making the word of God to none effect. And people go, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. I admit that the reason people are in this system is due to ignorance. The Bible tells you through lack of knowledge that this would come about. Okay, but we need to fashion ourselves. We need to sit down and start taking care of one another to become those obedient children. And not according to the former lust and desires and ignorance that brought us into this bondage, into this state of the bondage of Egypt again. Verse 15, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. He's not telling you just to believe. He's telling you to be a doer of the word. And in truth, that's what Paul was saying as well. If you put Paul in the context of Paul and and the whole of Paul in the context of Christ, that's what Paul was saying. But if you're going to take out here and there somebody trying to tell you about complicated things, you're going to miss it. So in verse 16, it says, Because it is written... Be ye holy, for I am holy. Christ is telling you, this is how you are perfected. You're not perfected because you believe in, believe in, believe in, believe in. Is because you are a seeker. And because you are striving. And because you are diligent. And that's what it means to be holy, for I am holy. And that's why he, he just said it twice. He's telling you, This is what you should be doing, and this is why you should be doing it. And he goes on to say, And if you call on the Father, which Father is he talking about? Father in Rome? The, you know, the senators of Rome? The benefactors who exercise authority? No. Call upon the Father, who without respect of persons, because see, all those people who are members of those society were persons, judges according to every man's work. Every man's work. What he's doing. Past the time of your sojourning here in fear. You don't earn salvation with your works. But you will be judged according to your works. Says it here. Uh, Paul even talks about it. Uh, Revelation talks about it. That according to your works. So you, and, and Jesus of course says you had to be a doer. You couldn't just be a hearer and say I believe. I hear. I believe. And so that's it. Nothing you have to do. No, you have to be a doer. You have to be putting your faith into action. Peter, Paul, James, uh, John, they all tell you that you have to be putting your faith into action. If you're not, then it brings your faith into question. In verse 18, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed 
with corruptible things as silver and gold. You can't buy your way into heaven. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you have to, if your faith is real, it will produce the works of righteousness. If your faith is not real, you will turn a blind eye to unrighteousness and call it righteous. You will call it righteous that you are forcing your neighbor to contribute to your welfare. And you don't care that you're obtaining benefits from a bankrupt system that is cursing your children with more and more debt on a daily basis. You will, you just will not want to see that. Because your heart is corrupt. If you're beginning to see that, great. Walk in that way. Turn that way. That's what repentance is. Turning your thinking around and thinking a different way. From your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. Now, what fathers is he talking about? Now, he just was talking about fathers that, uh, this uh, life before. These, the fathers who, uh, you know, he talks about the father in heaven who is not a respecter of persons, so there must be a father who is a respecter of persons, who will give benefits because you're a member. But now he, and, and even the word tradition here. Well, what is that word tradition? What, what is he talking about? Let's, Let's go down to uh, 21 here. Who verily was uh, foreordained before the foundations of the world, but was manifest in these last times. Because he's talking about those being the last times. Again, those difficult times. For you. Manifested for you. Who by him to believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your father, that your faith and hope might be in God. So, is your hope in God or is it in the gods of the world? Is it in the Father in heaven or the fathers of the earth? Where is your salvation in this life coming from? So anyway, we're going to take a look at some of the words that I just went over, or received by traditions, etc. Uh, when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom in a moment. So, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and suffers the loss of his soul? That's a question that came up from Jesus Christ in Matthew sixteen twenty six, and uh, and we see it again in Mark uh, eight thirty six and in Luke nine twenty five. What advantage is there to gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away and lose his own soul? It actually says, if you gain the whole world. The word world there in all those verses is constitutional order or system of government. And that that may be very important to understand that question from Christ in order to understand what Peter is talking about in these uh, next few verses. We, uh, we've read up to uh, 21. And uh, I was going to backtrack over here in the side panel and we see at preparing you is just where I'm taking this and I'll probably add to these notes eventually as time goes on. But uh, I have a number of live links there to articles like what was the Christian conflict? Again, the Christian conflict was over mostly 
over the fact that the Christians had their own form of private religion. And at that time, Rome had moved towards public religion, and public religion is supported by taxes. Private religion is supported by private contributions, free will contributions, not by taxes. And that is one of the great temptations, to to become a tyrant to your neighbor and force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare. That's perfectly acceptable today in modern society. It was perfectly acceptable in Roman society at that time. You could go back in Roman history, like I say, 150 years before, and it was becoming acceptable, but there were still plenty of people writing that this was degenerating society and destroying society. And they could see it. But once people get into it, they can't see it anymore. And they think, oh, this is what makes us great is the fact that we have national health care. And we take care of all these people with, you know, one-payer insurance. And this is so wonderful and great. And most of the people complaining about it are just complaining because they don't think it's going to work. They're not complaining because of the fact that they are not willing to covet their neighbor's goods. And they will say, oh, no, we don't want to covet our neighbor's goods and everything. But they're absolutely willing to send their kids to public school. They're absolutely willing to have a fire department at the expense of their neighbor. Rather than to a volunteer fire department, we used most fire departments were volunteer fire departments. You could sign up and become a member, but it was like a private club. And they might request dues, but they could waive those dues. Now, one of my sons just started such a volunteer fire department. It's one of the biggest organizations already (laughs) in uh, in the community. And I don't know what it's got like a dozen trucks already, but uh, uh, and but it's all volunteer. People are volunteering to do this work and to take the training and to give the training. And, you know, they there is a membership fee, but they they'll waive it and uh, they're not being a sticklers about it. They. And some people are paying more and some people are paying less. And, of course, some people, because we've lost what made the knowledge of what made us great, a lot of people don't want to have anything to do with it. When the flames start coming, they'll want to have something to do with it. But up till then, they're not. So this conflict with Rome was coming about because Rome was going the socialist way. The forced contributions and the government provides you with free bread. And Christians were going back the other way, saying, no, we're going to go back to free will offerings, which is why a lot of Romans who could remember the old way were becoming Christians. And becoming Christians, people were trying to impose Jewish traditions, which were actually fabricated traditions out of misinterpreting the Torah and not really the spirit from the beginning. But, uh, and this is why Peter wrote Romans, not Peter, Paul wrote Romans to tell the People that know those traditions, which really weren't what it was all about to begin with anyway, are done away with. What really is important is that you love your neighbor, that you care for your neighbor and don't stab your neighbor in the back with gossip. And 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 but he was against idolatry. And we're going to talk a great deal about idolatry because of the fact that uh, uh, Peter talks about idolatry. So anyway, there's a live link to an article explaining this Christian conflict between private religion and public religion, private religion being free will offerings, public religions being compelled offerings through taxation. The early church was entirely dependent, and early Christians entirely dependent 
upon free will offerings and their religion, their social welfare was unspotted by the world. And we see that same word that we see in James appearing here in Peter more than once. And so the free bread of Rome was available to the persons of Rome, but was not available to the Christians because they would not sign up and people did not like that. But they had a system based on charity and righteousness. In order for it to be righteous, it had to be based on a moral criteria, which we see if you actually understood the Old Testament, that's what that was all about. Stoning had nothing to do with hitting people in the head with rocks. Stoning had to do with cutting them off from the the stones of the altar, the welfare of the altar. And they were on their own. They were outcast. And um, so anyway, and now people don't want to believe that, but we will have articles. We do have articles. I'll put links here so that you can find them as to what that was all about. So the phrase received by traditions from one's fathers is from a single Greek word. Patroparadotus, and uh, father as a noun, pater, which is again that same word that had so much more significance then because all your senators were called patri and the emperor was called Patronus, our father. And uh, from this root, uh, that word pater comes from a root meaning a nourisher or protector, uh, uphold, which includes the fathers of the earth. This is this is what all these governments were based on, this law of the father, that if the state takes over the role of the father, the natural father, then it takes over the potestas and the imperium of the natural father. If the father does not protect his family and the state is required to protect his family, then the state obtains the right of the father. And Christ is saying, no, don't do that. But he also knows that fathers will need help from time to time. Families need help from time to time. So he commanded that his apostles make the people sit down in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands and start loving one another as I have loved you through sacrifice. And then something spiritual will take place. You will actually be given a spiritual protection and grace that it will come by way of the Holy Spirit that is going to require your faith and belief in order to do that because you have to cast your bread upon the waters in hopes that it comes back to you. There's no guarantee. It isn't your your compact is with God, not your compact with men. There's no social contract that will guarantee you you benefits, which you don't have now anyway, which we explain on our articles on Social Security. To get down to the next verses, Understanding that basic concept of doing things righteously will bring about blessings. Doing things unrighteously will bring about curses. Because you don't just live in a physical world. You live in a spiritual and physical world at the same time. You're living in a physical world within a spiritual reality. And so therefore, if you do things unrighteously, curses will come. So in verse 22, we say, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. 
It's talking about purified your souls in obeying the truth. This is who he's talking to. Christians who are already taking care of all the social welfare in their communities all over the Roman Empire through faith, hope, and charity. No longer eating the free bread of Rome. Can modern Christians say that's where they're at? No, they just believe. They're not doers of the word, but they believe. Pharisees said they believed. That's not enough to believe. It's not even enough to say you believe in Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's not enough. And and we'll talk about that later where they say, the devil believes that. <laughs> that's, that that's not enough. You have to be a doer of the word. You have to be purified by obeying the words of Christ. And if you're not obeying the words of Christ, if you're finding it difficult to obey the words of Christ, that brings your faith into question, whether or not you really do have faith. You cannot save yourself with a thought. There must be real repentance. There will be many who think they can save themselves with a thought, think that they're Christians because they say they are Christians, and they are not. They are workers of iniquity because they are not doing what Christ said. So being born again, are they born again? Not of the corruptible seed, but of the incorruptible. That means of the spiritual realm. Are you are you really living in righteousness and by righteousness and by faith and by hope and by charity and by the perfect law of liberty? Or are you still living by force and fear and coercion through men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority through the fathers of the earth? Or are you living through the Father in heaven hoping that your neighbor will be there for you? That's the question. By the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Is that how you are operating? By what Christ said to do? By loving one another or by forcing one another? Verse 24. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. So this is what he's saying. Now the chapter breaks. These are put in by men. We'll we'll go on to chapter 2 here. But understand. Who is Peter talking to? He's talking to people who have actually taken over all the social welfare of their society. Not just in their local communities, but connected all over. Because they're they're actually supporting Peter. And he, and he makes reference to that. That they they have uh, obeyed God and, and, they, and they loved him and the brethren. They have loved the brethren. That's, that's Peter and the others. But he says, see that you also love one another. Take care of one another with a pure heart. Fervently, fervently. Which, of course, it was going to require in the days ahead because there were going to be great temptations. Not only were they being persecuted, but life was getting difficult. The more things got difficult in those local communities, the more the Christians were despised. Because they blamed, well, if they were members and paying into our system, then we might be solvent. Of course, they wouldn't have been because they were insolvent because of the corruptibleness of the government. Because you, you, you gave men power and it corrupted them. It corrupted Saul. Why wouldn't it corrupt them? 
It was even corrupting David, who was a man after God's own heart. He was being corrupted by the power that people gave him. Power corrupts. Write it down. If you want to gain your rights back, you have to take your responsibilities back. You have to start really loving one another. Not sitting, warming a pew doing it, but actually gathering together as Christ commanded and taking care of one another and casting your bread upon the waters to do it. In First Peter, second chapter, we see uh, more references to uh, guile and hypocrisy and even malice. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. See, now he's talking about newborn babes. Well, that was because he just talked in verse 23 about being born again. Being born again in another way. People say, oh yeah, I'm born again. Well, I was born again because I accepted Jesus, but you're not doing what Jesus said. So I question whether or not you have really accepted Jesus. Now, I can't get into your heart. I don't have to get into your heart. I know that Peter, Paul, James, John all tell us to question our faith, to examine our faith, test our faith. And I'm just pointing out that you're not keeping the commandments. You're actually coveting your neighbor's goods. You're being slack and slothful in caring for one another. You're not going to church to provide a social welfare, a Corbin of Christ through faith, hope, and charity. You go to church to be encouraged and to be made feel good. But your pastors are tickling your ears. They're not telling you the whole truth. I'm just bringing the rest of the story. And I'm also would offer you the opportunity of actually gathering together as Christ commanded and start working out your salvation with fear and trembling as those obedient souls. Purifying your souls through that obedience, which Peter refers to time and time again. So as these newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word. Okay, I'm giving you the word. If you seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, there will be a treasure building up in the spiritual realms that will bring blessings I cannot even speak of. I can't even imagine. You can't even imagine. But you don't have to imagine. Which is why Christ said, Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all else will be provided to you. It will automatically come. Because you're, you're, you're building up the treasures in the spiritual realm that will bring blessings in this physical realm. It may not bring you a new car. It may not bring you riches, but it will bring you life when others are dying around you. And it will bring life to those who you love, your children and your children's children. And of course, you have to love your neighbor's children as much as you love your own. So it will bring life to them too. Because you're setting, you live in a cause and effect universe and that universe includes both a spiritual and physical reality. But the benefits of the world will bring about curses because the benefits of the world world are based on force. It will set you up for tyranny and tyranny will bring destruction. We saw that in the last century. We're going to get to see it in this century. And if you go back to the century before, I'm sure you saw it there. All the way back, you know, go back to the Inquisitions and the Crusades and millions died. 60 million people died in the Inquisitions. 
in the name of God. <laughs> so, you know, that, and what we will see will be greater than anything you have seen so far. If you live long enough to see it. If so, be ye have tasted the Lord is gracious. The, the gifts will come. To whom coming as unto living stone. This is one of the places where they talk about being living stones. The stones of the altar were always living stones. They are metaphors for a system of social welfare based on the perfect law of liberty and love for one another. As unto living stones, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. That's very important, those spiritual sacrifices. They come in the form of physical sacrifices, but those physical sacrifices must be motivated out of a love of righteousness, a love of mercy. You want mercy, you must have mercy. You want your prayers heard, you must hear the prayers of others. You you must give in a way that strengthens the poor, and God will give in a way that strengthens you. He He will not spoil you. <laughs> So that you squander his wealth. He he will give to you according to what will make you stronger, make you wiser, make you give you more opportunities to bless others. Maybe not in a big dramatic way, maybe in a very uh, humble way. But that's okay because God wants to create humility in you. So why are we disallowed or rejected of men in verse 4? When it, when it talks about this disallowed indeed of men. That actually is the word rejected of men. Well, what was that Christian conflict? Why, why are they rejected of men? Why are they disliked of men? Because they say in that what you're doing now ain't right. What you should be doing is what Christ said. You should be taking care of one another in pure religion through love of one another. How are we lively stones? What's he talking about? Peter was a stone of the altar. Christ was the cornerstone, but Peter was a stone of the altar. The apostles were stones of the altar. Each man and his family are altars of earth. These systems of welfare that we saw with the altars that were built of stone and earth was a system based on free will offerings. The systems of Cain, the systems of Sodom and Gomorrah, the systems of Nimrod, the systems of Caesar, the systems of Pharaoh are not based on free will offerings. Their systems make the word of God to none effect because you have to make a choice out of unselfishness for God to be unselfish with you. God wants to be unselfish with you. He wants to be merciful with you. He wants to give you gifts. But He cannot until you Make certain righteous choices yourself. Because that would not be justice. To bless you while you curse others. Even, you know, the the servant who blessed others by, you know, saying, yeah, forgiven. You know, you you owe a hundred. Well, now you only owe fifty. You know, he was blessing them. (laughs) And his master said, well, I have to bless you because you were blessing them. 
even though theoretically the master's losing out because he's not going to get the the collection that he had coming. But you were showing mercy, so he had to show mercy to you. But if you... You see, people don't want to see this in the systems that we have created for ourselves. The covetous nature of them. They don't want to see that because they, they want those benefits. They, they, they're afraid to live without that. There is no security in these systems. It's a delusion. It's an illusion. It's not real. We, we live in a spiritual house. If you go the way of Macbeth, you will go the way of destruction. Even though he promises you that, you know, the witches promised him, oh, you'll get all these things. And what they said was right. But he misinterpreted. He thought nobody would be able to kill him, but somebody was able to kill him. He thought that the, you know, the, the forest would never move, but the forest moved. <laughs> you know, and he was deceived by the great deceivers of the universe. And we have been deceived. And we have to have the humility to admit it and turn around and go back the other way. And and beg God for the strength to do that. Why are they called the holy priesthood? Peter is saying that we are a holy office of a priest and of an order or a body. When you get down to verses 4 and 5, we see, To whom coming as unto living stone disallowed indeed of men but chosen of God, chosen of God, and precious, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. You need to understand what they're talking about. They're talking about another form of government based on freedom and liberty under God. But we'll have to talk about that more later. Until then, peace on your house and may God be with you. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.